0: Hey Renu, how are you? I'm good Declan, how are you?
1: Good, nice to be back in the GUCAS studio again. Always I was nice to be I was back, overseas yeah. a couple of weeks ago. to to rough it at Esmo. Yeah,
0: you brought all the equipment back, right?
1: I did. I did. Yeah, yeah
0: put it yeah. all back in the right spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, when we're on the road, we kind of wing it a little bit. But um, yeah, it's nice to be back in the. But you got some great studio. interviews,
0: and uh, that, yeah, that Esmo really episode good. was really good.
1: It was, we just did prostate cancer because there was so much prostate cancer. But boy, bladder cancer was huge yeah, as well. So we'll yeah. we'll come back and talk about it. We'll have to talk about EV 302 too, when the when the paper Absolutely. actually gets published, but pretzels are all the rage, and yeah, yeah. It was, we're going to start really some amazing.
0: local trials. I mean, it is, it is yeah. all the rage, and I think it's going to be a really exciting field in the future.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really was. But um, that episode it, it, we posted last week, which was our Esmo highlights, and we focused on uh, mostly prostate cancer data with radioligand therapy. We chatted to some uh, great authors, and we also talked about the Embark trial enzalutamide in the BCR uh, setting, and also about the the uh, multiple failed I.O. trials and prostate cancer. <laughs> you yeah.
0: love tweeting about this. <laughs> yes. But look, Yet um, another failed trial. <laughs> yes. So it's,
1: uh, it's prostate cancer again today?
0: It is. It is. But it's, yeah. a, it's a very important topic, I think, because yeah. it's, I think this has been one of the game-changing aspects of prostate cancer in recent years.
1: It has, because what we're gonna talk about today is metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, this is a Bayer-themed episode. So as you know, we have a partner program at GUcast, which has enabled us to have this nice studio and push out a lot more content than we were able to do before. And that's all thanks to some great partners who you can read about on our website. And then every so often, one of our partners um, will get together with us and say, hey, this is a topic of you know mutual interest. Yeah. And that's what we mean when we say a themed podcast. And our friends at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, who are silver partners, of GU cast Uh, are supporting us on this podcast because metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, AR pathway inhibitors, which is today's topic of conversation, uh, is of interest to certainly uh, our audience and also to Bayer who have uh, darolutamide um, in the market. Absolutely. Um, And actually the reason, you know, it's quite good timing because we're in December here in Australia, December 2023. uh, And as of the 1st of December, we've just had uh, darolutamide, AR pathway inhibitor, uh, reimbursed in Australia for men uh, with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate. Cancer. It's so
0: very exciting. Yeah, it's great. It's so great news. Exactly.
1: So now we've got a Christmas present. Exactly. So this has been a big year for AR pathway inhibitors in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting for uh, our patients here in Australia because now darolutamide is uh, available, uh, reimbursed, uh, joining apalutamide which was reimbursed a few months ago, and I think enzalutamide is on the way. On the I can't way, remember. I've to double check. Yeah. Maybe our guest and might know. It, bit yes. More about you it. know, we it.
0: should. Yeah, absolutely. We should. Yeah, we we've chosen him for a reason.
1: Yeah, uh, Joseph Iskia, Associate Professor Joseph Iskia, uh, is a urologist here in Melbourne. Joseph, um, thanks very much for coming to the GUcast Studio.
2: It's an absolute pleasure, Declan and Renu. Lovely to see you guys and see your very fancy setup. This is very <laughs> exciting, and I'm very impressed that your son allows you to use such fancy equipment without his assistance. Well, it's it, we that have not that comes a, at a price. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a
1: shared uh, shared space. Uh, yeah. Myself and my eleven year old have, so he's still got a an Xbox uh, over there in the corner. Beanbag, uh, yeah, can't with like kind of big monitors yeah. now. As well. um, yeah, so Joseph is a urologist um, here in Melbourne at Austin Health and uh, associate professor at the University of Melbourne, and we can't go much further before we talk about this without mentioning your pedigree as a podcaster. Now oh, I know yeah. you said, oh, yeah, you know I don't have much time to do it at the moment, but. Uh, Talking Urology was one of the original big podcasts in Urology, renew,
0: wasn't it? The podcast has started it all, an inspiration to all of us, Joseph.
2: Yeah, uh, we got in very early, so sometimes it's better to be, you know, early than good, and I thought (laughs) that was the policy we used. But in fact, no, we had a lot of fun with it. I made the mistake at at an advisory board of saying, you know what, I wish there was – I started listening to these things called podcasts. I wish there was one that I could listen to in the car on the way to work and just sort of cover off like a paper – and at the ad board, they said, "Oh, that sounds like a real an okay idea." And then two weeks later, they rang me and said, "Yeah, we'd like you to do it." And as you guys would know, they are a lot of work, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, now I'm, you know, we'll let the big boys do it. So <laughs> you're do a great job.
1: So he says. But uh, I was just saying to him before we came on air, Renew that when you you know Google. Um, best urology podcast which yeah. i only do every few weeks or so <laughs> uh, in the hope that is up there right <laughs> that's right um have we shifted you know uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but talking urology is still always right up there because yeah, yeah you were there at the start but also you published a lot of great content it was very popular um and you know we still listen to back episodes you you were on talking urology, yes and
0: before. and i've been on site with joseph i mean i remember when we interviewed axel Westberger, right, at, at, at a conference.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That was and the way to do it. Yeah, it was, it
0: was yeah. you know,
2: when they were before
0: still. podcasting became cool, Joseph did it. Yeah, yeah.
2: before the guests realised how many people asked them to do podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now you're getting <laughs> tormented. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But look,
1: it's uh, it's still out there. Talking Urology, we'll put a link in the show notes. There's some great content there. Actually, what I like about it was um, you still, of course, have a passion for education. And indeed, you, of, you often make some really good points on social media about frustrations with um, uh, uh, digesting multiple papers and the amount of papers out there etc cetera, etc cetera. and you have some good ideas about slimlining that but that was one of the goals of talking urology was to get these key papers talk to the authors so the content is still very relevant because of course landmark papers are landmark papers and there's uh, there's a great library great back catalogue on talking urology
0: yeah. and, and sometimes it feels like you need a degree to be able to read these papers and understand them so you know anything you can do to simplify it
2: well, this is one of my great passions, Renna. You're absolutely right. And in fact, I've got this wonderful graph that looks at... There's a, there's a concept of readability of papers. And in the last 10 years, you need to have a PhD level of education to be able to read the average paper. And in fact, they make the point that paper... Most journal articles were uh, written to be written, essentially not to be read. Written <laughs> to be published and not to be read. It's a, it is tough. And I think it's one of the great uh, challenges of our times is how do we start to convey information in a more easily accessible fashion. And podcasting is a fantastic way to do it. Great. you know. right. the right people. Um,
1: and look, at the end of the podcast, we want to um, uh, also ask you about one of your other interests because one of the reasons you're not doing as many podcasts at the moment is you have other interests. You're, you're, you're into the medical device development industry um, and you have a really interesting idea and... Maybe we'll talk this about is, a little bit at the end. I
2: hope we can. This is the problem. You don't want to have really good ideas late at night because they end up consuming <laughs> your life. <Yeah. laughs> Essentially, we're doing it. Mate. We're, it's fantastic. Well, I look forward to chatting.
1: Yeah, well, look, urologists, uh, stay tuned into it because, um, you know, we all like fiddly things. That's what urology is, uh, doing a lot of endo urology especially that's the uh that's the uh, the not quite spoiler alert is um <laughs> if you if you've been that's up right. late at night very frustrated waiting to stick a stent into somebody hang around and, and listen. stay to, tuned um, to the end of the podcast exactly right <laughs> but look um onto the the main chunk of it so renew i suppose we've talked a bit about um combination approaches in metastatic hormone sensitive prostate no. cancer over the past year or two, but it just really feels end of 2023 in many regions around the world that the AR pathway inhibitors are now well they're kind of registered in most countries and mm. um, uh, they're they're indicated but they're becoming more and more available the reimbursement is there but we know there's a lag because uh, real world data still tells us that despite stuff being available there's, there's a problem with utilization a lot of men are getting started on ADT for metastatic prostate cancer uh, and we can talk about imaging and synchronous and you know so on metachronous um, but they're missing an opportunity to have the benefit of a combined approach and I think it's very clear we'll talk about that that a combined approach is Um, really really valuable for patients for survival quality of life etc so it just feels at the time we're in now is the time we need to be getting the message out so people understand these options
0: yeah I I mean I think it's a new era and there's a new standard of care and I think that's what Joseph is going to tell us a bit more about because he has a passion for this
1: yeah exactly and look Joseph I suppose uh, charted was seven or eight years ago now and it clearly showed combinations work because uh, docetaxel did but Patients don't really want docetaxel in this setting, do they? I don't hear anyone talking about docetaxel at the end of 2023. uh, The APCCC is clearly saying if you have an AR pathway inhibitor available, that should be the doublet, that should be the combination approach. uh, And the role of chemo on top of that is kind of to be discussed. But it seems to me that there's been a big change from ADT and chemo, from charted, Stampedia, to look, if you have access to one of these AR pathway inhibitors, darolutamide, apalutamide, enzalutamide. Abby, uh, I suppose we'll throw in there that should be the, the doublet of choice. And then we can discuss triplets but, but what are your thoughts on that that uh, suggestion
2: absolutely I agree that uh, that the doublet triplet uh, content has changed absolutely and and charted brought our medical oncology colleagues all the way forward up until then you know it had been the domain of urologists this early metastatic disease and with uh you know, chris sweeney's amazing trial and uh, nick james and the stampede we really did bring them all the way forward and uh, and it's wonderful to have them with us so early in the journey but it's almost like now we have these new tablets available the novel hormone agents and uh and i, and I challenge you on that because you keep calling them ar pathway inhibitors who decides what's the best acronym we could Maybe a topic that for another podcast. Because yeah. you know, you they all get thrown around until we finally all coalesce on the <laughs> uh, Or one so that's easy to pronounce. ARPs? ARPs? ARCs?
1: AR signaling inhibitors? I don't know who decides that. Maybe it's Chris Sweeney.
2: Chris Sweeney one day 11: 11.30 at night at a conference. Everyone, we're going to call them novel hormone agents. Maybe this is a Twitter poll that's going to roll out after this episode.
1: ARPs, RCs, NHAs. etc or something else all right there you go stay tuned we'll post it uh
2: so you know so it's brought it forward they now we're having these discussions with them about what's the best treatment option uh i think we will as urologists we are very comfortable in this space right but up until really up until i think charted we would start men on adt we would add in bicalutamide either at the start, and we sort of moved away from that for a while because maximal androgen blockade probably didn't matter. We'd bring bicalutamide bicolut- um, in, which is a first-generation antiandrogen. And so I think this is a great opportunity for us. And you know, And there was no clinical evidence that it was beneficial, really. And now we have these extraordinary drugs, all three of them, that have an overall survival benefit if or if not given with ADT. That's one of the controversial things, which would be fascinating to talk about later. And it's something that's right in our wheelhouse. And I think this is the the key thing now, is how do we decide who are the right people to to have uh, chemotherapy? I think there's still a role. I think young men, terrible disease, visceral disease, where the biology is... Is going to be important you will see people getting triple therapy but the vast majority probably will get doublet therapy up front if it's available i think one of the important things might be in different countries will be the cost because docetaxel is actually relatively cheap compared to what these drugs will be and and another one of my passions is who should be worried about the costs is it the urologist mm-hmm. or the medical oncologist or is it in australia the pbac and i'd argue strongly that it is not the urologist there are people at the pbac who are far cleverer than i am who have decided that for the indications listed it is a cost-effective treatment when you take into account survival and quality of life so i I think i think nearly everybody with metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and nearly everyone just leaves out a few like the slow the slow movers and the and the elderly and stuff like that 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 are really old and probably something you'll catch up with them nearly everybody else should be on these agents
0: and, and I think that's right, Joseph, because we can argue a lot about duplet versus triplet therapy, but I think the real mistake is having them on sole agent ADT, right? That Still is the, maybe. that's the culture that we have to move away from. Because, you know, OS benefit is like the holy grail of clinical trials. And we've got these great trials that all show yeah, an always 40% benefit. 40
1: percent benefit. Yeah.
0: So, so I mean, that is significant. So, I mean, duplet, triplet, okay, well, I mean, maybe you'll get it wrong, maybe you'll get it right, maybe you'll choose the patient correctly, maybe you won't. But the real mistake, and what we still see at our MDTs, are these patients with metastatic um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer that are on single-agent ADT.
1: So for people out there listening to this podcast, urologists, radiation oncologists especially, I think uh, that group of people who tend to have patients with localised disease that might relapse, or as urologists we tend to diagnose the metastatic disease, think very carefully when you're starting a patient on ADT alone. Uh, as you listen to this podcast if someone comes into your clinic tomorrow into your outpatient clinic and you're starting ADT you have to think why why am I only starting ADT yeah shouldn't we constantly it? I mean maybe there's a small group of people we talk about ADT monotherapy but for the vast majority of people who you think based on this scan or this clinical circumstance I'm starting this patient on ADT you need to strongly think why am I not also starting that patient on an AR pathway inhibitor certainly in Australia now with with uh, these drugs now reimbursed
2: so I think there's a couple of things that, that people will <laughs> might have ticking through their minds. One is, can we do intermittent ADT? Because there's certainly still a role for that, I think. I think they want to have low-volume disease. I think the great Maha Hussein study showed that there's really not much of a role for intermittent, I think, if you've got high-volume disease. Uh, so can intermittent work? And then, um, and then the second thing about these agents is whether or not they are something that you are comfortable doing. Yep. And so that's it. So as a urologist, if you are not comfortable doing it, you need to refer on because, and this is one thing that I think is really important, at every step of the disease from non-metastatic CRPC on, if you delay the introduction of the novel hormone agent, there is clear evidence they do not do as well. And that's the progression-free survival two point in the Spartan study with apalutamide. If you delay the introduction of apalutamide by even just four months, that's that those curves never catch up. And so is there the same emergency at metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? Probably not to the same degree. But at every step, these agents are effective, and the earlier we give them, the better. That is, that is proven to be the case. And I can't think of a reason in the biology that that would change just because it's hormone-sensitive prostate cancer now that we have the results of these studies.
0: And, and that's part of the argument, you know. When when we're looking for NMCRPC, you know, a lot of people argue, well, it's is it conventional imaging, is it, you know, novel imaging? But the thing is, no matter what stage yes. you catch it at, it's beneficial.
2: Absolutely. So why would it suddenly not be? Because exactly. you've got PSMA positive Mets rather than conventional, conventional imaging. Pos- yeah. So they're, they're they're seven millimeters bigger if they're.
0: And the truth is, is this whole class of NMCRPC is a man made definition. And it's really just out there so that we can start patients on these drugs earlier.
1: And we posted a, an, an MCRPC episode uh, just a few days ago as well when we talked about exactly those topics. But um, let's go on to the imaging for a second, Joseph, mm-hmm. because as Renu just said, we can sort of uh, we tie ourselves in knots sometimes. Mm. Is it based on PSMA alone? Is it high volume, low volume? But in Australia, when the reimbursement started to come in earlier this year... It was very interesting because we didn't know whether the reimbursement authorities in Australia would mandate, for example, high volume, low volume, must be conventional imaging. You know, things that we saw in the pivotal Mm. trials, but they didn't. They made it very simple. It's basically, if you've got a patient with metastatic prostate cancer, if it's metachronous or synchronous, if it's PET imaging only, if it's high volume, it doesn't matter. So it's very simple. So that's why I try and you know remind myself of that message. If there's a patient out there, even if we're thinking, oh, maybe he can be intermittent over the years, mm-hmm. and we're starting ADT, why would we not add in an AR pathway inhibitor? I think that's the, the main thing for me, and... Yeah, and having Daroludamay come into the market j- just this week is obviously another choice we have now. Because I suppose that's the other thing we wanted to pick his brains on. Renew is about well, how do you choose now? We got well, you know a few of these drugs in, in and that's the, the thing. I think
0: um, you know traditionally we've had you know this whole combination of abiraterone and prednisolone, and that, that always that almost seems a bit too difficult, right? It, it just
2: yeah, we're, not seems hard. we're not that clever. We're not that clever. Steroids. Yeah, we're not like steroid just, clever, and we're really but. not. <laughs>
0: but we don't have that problem anymore because but. we've got three drugs that you know that work well when we know the data i guess we're kind of spoiled for choice
2: yeah you know the steroid problem for us as urologists is probably the drug drug interactions Mm. that is one thing we do need to be a little careful of if we are going to prescribe them And, and and they're important because you will see if you would see genuine effects with and they're different medications that are affected by it. And so there's a fantastic sheet that actually we're putting together uh, with USAN, so the Urological Society of Australia and New Zealand, which will be a sheet with the drug-drug interactions outlined. So in fact, if you do commence one of these drugs, you can do a quick run through, are they on any of these drugs? Mm -hmm. One of the beauties of darolutamide is that the list of drug-drug interactions is very, very small. Or you can just send along to their GP and say, This I've just commenced them on this watch out. So, for example, they notice that uh, some people that start these medications all of a sudden notice they're getting reflux, and uh, you know it's giving me reflux. In fact, what's happening is that their uh, pantoprazole is no longer as effective because it's been affected by the it's been cleared more you know more easily because they've stimulated those uh, enzymes in the liver. So it's not that it's not effective. You've actually just changed the drug. You might have to increase the dose or change it up. So that's probably the one thing that we we really do need to be aware of and our medical oncology colleagues will very much enjoy pointing out to us if we don't take it into consideration <laughs> because it's, it is important because, yeah. you know, you're more likely to clot if, you know, um, yeah. the, the dabigatran and stuff is less effective. You have to probably increase the dose and keep an eye on their bleeding times and stuff. But that's all stuff that can be managed, I think, by a GP with the right one. Mm. Just be aware, this is going to change. Do you mind helping me guide them through this process? Because I've got a drug here that's going to extend their life with prostate cancer.
1: And are you comfortable starting these drugs? You've been at this for Absolutely. quite a while but in the non-metastatic setting because we had reimbursement in Australia in that setting before we now have it in this setting. So you're comfortable using drugs like I'm comfortable like because, one, I'm heart. happy
2: to have a quick look through the drug-drug interactions. You've got to remember a lot of these drugs, you know, it's all drugs that were, probably they stopped producing in 1970, like, you know, ketoconazole, <laughs> as effective as it was for prostate cancer. <laughs> it's not something we use anymore. Um, but all the other drugs, yeah, you just got to check and make sure they're not on it. So that's fine. And I think the thing that gives you comfort is you just need to be able to do two things. Are you happy to make a phone call and sit on the line and talk to someone at the PBA or at the PBS? If you're happy to do that, and the second thing you've got to be happy to do is if they do experience side effects, are you happy to dose reduce? And this is one of the easiest things in the world to do. Because we go, oh they got side effects, they're fatigued, or they've got the rash with APA, or you know, maybe more fatigue with Enza, perhaps. Um are you happy to dose reduce and it's so easy to manage it really is just make a phone call you know, your medical oncology colleagues are great to chat to they're often in the clinic with you if you're in a public setting. But I've, I'm happy to reduce the dose by half. You know, we can talk about side effects in mean, a I don't know. Do you want to go into it now? Or?
0: But I, I'm wondering, Joseph, you know, what, it, I mean, those are the mm. typical kind of side effects that you will see mm. on a pamphlet for darolutamide or enzalutamide or apalutamide. But what about those odd things? You know, what about if they complain of abdominal pain or if they complain of, um, I don't know, vision loss or memory loss? You know, unusual things that you maybe wouldn't expect. How much more work is it for you then to work up those patients and make sure there's nothing serious going on? Do you have to discontinue the medication completely? I think those kind of things would.
2: They're good points you make. Have you ever looked at the U.S.A.N.S. Urology website? You know, it says that it's got something. We are surgical. we're, We're experts in the surgical and medical management of people with urological problems. We are medical management experts, right? We actually we we do take it on. We we treat. Lots of things medically, when you look at the management of LUTs, the management of overactive bladders, you know the management of these conditions of like stone disease, we can start allopurinol and we can manage you know, dissolve uric acid stones. Why all of a sudden are we afraid to manage these people medically? So I think is, is I've, I've not had an abdominal pain problem, and uh, but it might be something like I started it and then three days later I got it. Actually, you know, listen to your patients. Make sure they haven't got something else going on, obviously, because we are doctors. We can do that. Um, but then you can just halve the dose. Like that's what you do. They come in and I always get them back at about four weeks because a lot of these side effects will come through in that time. So if and the, one of the main things and we'll often miss it and you need to ask the partner, ask the wife, how's his cognition? And they'll go, eh, he's pretty forgetful or he's not as sharp. Mm. Reduce the dose. Seriously, I go to half dose, I get them back four weeks later. He's still not very good. I put it down to one tablet when I'm, we're dealing with the with the, the four tablets, so the ends are an I don't see as much fatigue with Daryl They get a lot of that from the ADT. I don't think it adds much. But it's certainly something that I would do. Uh, and then you're on one tablet, they are not happy, I put them down to zero tablets. And if they're still not happy, you go, well it wasn't the tablets. You see? Yeah. So then I can go back up. I actually work back up. So I see them a lot in that first six weeks uh, six months because you are finding your you're finding your baseline. You're trying to find mm-hmm. what, what they're doing. So one thing that can happen is do you start ADT? And you've got a six-month window in the pbs listing before you need to start the novel hormone agent just saying it out there just nha uh, (laughs) (laughs) for the acronym battle that is on now (laughs) um is is, you you've you've got six months but i i just i don't want to leave it too long before i say i i tend to start them at the same time and then i'm happy to know that any because they they at the moment they need the adt i can't do anything about that really apart from exercise physiology and And the things that are really important for people starting ADT, but I can easily manipulate their novel hormone agent.
1: You mentioned earlier that there are probably a group of patients still, despite the enthusiasm for doublets with NHA, um, who will benefit from adding in chemo. And and darolutamide, the, the drug that's been reimbursed here recently, of course, its pivotal trial was a trial that included docetaxel. Um, and it was docetaxel ADT plus or minus darolutamide and a clear benefit from adding the darolutamide and there seems to be a consensus emerging that yeah certainly those bad actors as you said so what's your practice for the you know that younger patient coming in with liver mets or high volume bone mets very high psa Do you start um, already yourself, the ADT and the darolutamide uh, with a view to
2: um, referring on? You don't give chemo yourself, right? No, I don't. But But
1: but we need to get the patient started. That's the point. Absolutely,
2: I do. And that's why I think we should be writing the first script at the very least. So even if you are not a urologist who's going to embrace this, you have an opportunity to write the first script. And I don't know what your referral uh, pathways are like and you chat to urologists that work in rural environments. And they don't even have to be that rule. And they say, it's really tough to get in and see a medical oncologist. And, you know, maybe there might be a delay of a few months. And you think, well, you've got to get that in there. It's really effective. And one of the things about docetaxel is that uh, the problem with chartered and will forever curse Chris Sweeney is there's what did that make of the tax 327 trial? Like it, what, what does docetaxel do now in castration resistant prostate cancer where the disease is quite different and the mechanism of action of docetaxel is very different to the novel hormone agents. So, uh, you know, you can whack them all up front with triplet, but by not giving the dose of taxol, you've you've brought tax three two seven back onto the table. I think as a genuinely effective uh, treatment down the track, because it is probably slightly better tolerated than cabazitaxel, and it's a whole of a lot cheaper. So if you're worried about costs, that's one thing that makes it easy. But with the prescription of the novel hormone agents, I'm, um, I've, I'm unfortunately ruining the health budget. <laughs> <laughs> For a good
1: reason, yeah.
2: I haven't heard that mentioned in years and years. But for the
1: youngsters uh, listening out there, yeah, landmark trial that showed chemo in mCRPC improved OS, and that's where we thought chemo sat until all these yep. years later. But and it did feel like that. Quite, it does feel like that. That that's where chemo it kind of has come forward and made a brief yep. appearance yep. in metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer before it's going to get pushed back again. Except clearly, as the Arison's trial showed, there are patients who benefit from yep. the triplet. So, um, Renew, I know you're very. You do a lot of teaching uh, for young medical <laughs> students. So, what what are your messages to the trainees out there? Because some of them will say, "I'm only listening because I want to hear about this machine that is going to help with the stuck stone later on in the <laughs> yeah, podcast." I yeah, have I have no interest in this drug drug interaction, and I you know I don't really understand the latest trials. It's hard to keep up with the data. Is the thing mm-hmm. we often hear from trainees, but. Yeah. you oh, you constantly speak to trainees to say, prostate cancer is really interesting. It's it what we interesting. all grew and up I think, on. And yeah. you know, we can do so well for our patients. So I, I think number one, take it take an interest. And Absolutely. if you you know, it's very easy to Actually acquire the knowledge to be able to oh. speak to patients, about, to assess patients, to to select drugs and monitor drugs. Yeah. Or even if you don't want to do that, at least be aware of the patients who will benefit exactly. uh, from one of these combination right. approaches. But how how do you? And I mean, the I, I think
0: you're right. I think it's identification, and it, and I think it's the culture you set at each hospital that you that you work at. You know, I remember when we were training, it was all about zolacost. You know, that was that was the treatment. You know, you. You write one script and you, they get both and that's what they, you start them on and that's what they continue on. And, and since then so many drugs have come on, on onto the market and I think, it's, I think you really have to, to teach by example here and kind of do it and, and see how, how it's done for, for them to, to be able to realise, well, this is that patient that is ideal for this treatment and this is what I need to look out for.
2: Can I pick up on one thing there? You know how you're saying how tough it is to keep up with the latest medical literature? Could you imagine what it would have been like being on the EAU prostate cancer guidelines between 1950 and 2000, right? You had one, you had basically, you started ADT. That was the guidelines. You could have had one meeting in 50 years to do the guidelines. Now the guidelines committees must have to meet every like three months yeah. to keep up with what's going on. It's mayhem.
0: Yeah. But I think, you know, uh, I mean, and Joseph, you've always been a big proponent of this and, and Fred said in our last episode, yeah. he has, you know, these kind of pearls of wisdom, you know, he says, don't dabble. Yeah. If you don't have a genuine interest in this, I mean, it would be great if they can write that first script, but if you don't have a genuine interest in this, that's fine, but identify the patients and refer them early. I mean, don't that's dabble. key. Don't dabble. It's, uh, and he also says, give your best drugs early. Because people always think, let's save something for when they get the um, you know, N- uh, MCRPC, when they get really bad end stage disease. But actually, no, there's survival benefit for giving your best drugs up front.
2: As a side note, just on that point of not dabbling, don't do something you're passionate about. It's really important that you always go, yeah, I'm never going to do it. But you need to be involved. It's sort of like the IO agents in metastatic renal and bladder cancer. You need to be aware of the side effects, even if you aren't, because these patients are still coming to see you. So it's everybody needs to know this. Yeah.
1: Totally right. And um, uh, before we move on and finally talk about um, the other little teaser that we've been doing. <laughs> just a brief word on imaging. Imaging of metastatic prostate yeah, cancer. So important. here in Australia it, it's been standard of care just to use PSMA PET CT, whether it's for the newly diagnosed patient or for the recurrent patient and so on. Do you do any conventional imaging or you know, when you've got your new metastatic patient, do you you've got a PET scan in front I of do. you? Do I you do try really. and translate what would this look like in paracens and titan
2: and enzymes you know do do you try and i do a lot of conventional imaging because they're on clinical trials that's yeah you have to do it and that's the only reason i do it otherwise they're all getting psma pets. i think and and you know the thing is urologist you it's you should always be following the regulatory guideline or the, the regulatory approvals I don't I don't I don't advocate being outside but sometimes you've got to use some common sense and yes while a lot of these are say for non-metastatic CRPC it was on conventional imaging but they've only had a PSMA PET and if something's lit you know is, is lit up like it's you start saying well is it could it be non-metastatic because back then there were different drugs indicated that space compared to metastatic CRPC so but I want to give them chemo, then it's metastatic. If they're not, it was less than 10 millimetres, so probably wouldn't have been seen on conventional imaging. And and that was where you had to use a bit of, a little bit of common sense on how it's done. But I think now it doesn't matter. These drugs are effective. If you pick up metastatic disease, I think people will benefit. And in fact, there is a trial being done with datorilutamide looking at PCMA-positive, conventional imaging-negative uh patients and and we're certainly we're, we're doing that at our hospital which is been led by our medical oncologists i think it'll be a good trial to hopefully show what we believe should be real and true
0: yeah i mean i think it's going to be key to have these prospective trials that embed psma pet um i mean the other question before we move on to the little teaser is um uh oh my gosh mental blank adt the use of adt in conjunction with uh, these novel uh, agents um
2: you mean know, not use the ADT? Yeah, yeah, I mean,
0: because yeah. I mean, we all believe that ADT is what causes a lot of the toxicity. I mean, flashback to Tim Baker, right? It's
1: and it's really topical this couple of weeks because uh, in the Embark study, which is biochemical recurrence, it's not metastatic, but it's showing that whether you used, you know, monotherapy um, AR pathway yeah. inhibitor versus ADT plus, you know, the benefit was still there for the oncological side. But I suppose that that's a bit off piece for today. We'll have to yeah. come back to it. Shall we go on to the, the, the teaser bit? I no, I don't, don't do it. any stone surgery, but you do a bit of stone <laughs> surgery, so
0: Yeah, you know, Joseph, I, I still recall <laughs> those nights when you you know you you've got a stent to do in theater and it's two AM and you're still waiting for the general surgeon to finish up with his lap collie and you're still waiting and it's now three AM, no sign of your patient for the stent. Is yes. there is there a solution?
2: Well I am glad you asked, Reno <laughs> no. We have. I, I I made the mistake one day of sort of basically sitting there in the dark, waiting for my damn slot in the emergency room, thinking, so in the emergency operating listing, there's got to be a better way. So I sort of sketched out this idea for a stent inserter such that it could be done in the emergency room. And now, two years later, we are well on our way to doing it. So essentially, they come in with renal colic. If you think they need stenting, you can, like putting in a urethral catheter under local anaesthetic, maybe with a bit of sedation, pop a stent
0: Wow.
1: There will be people listening to this podcast in a theatre holding bay
2: at 2 a.m.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where is this thing? I could have put it in in the emergency department you know, <laughs> six hours ago. So uh, any-
2: well, I would like to think that it's a really simple process. Can I tell you, medical devices, will, uh, they, will, they, will, they will sap your soul <laughs> inventing those, the regulatory requirements, quality management systems, clinical research organisations, IP protection. It all just it will drive you nuts. It's a lot of fun, but uh, it is so much hard work. I look around now at every single medical device and think, "Oh, there's some poor man or woman who this ruined their life."
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, what what is the name of the device? And and so it's called
2: the Jiffy Stent, right? Because uh, my my co-founder, my co-inventor, is an (gasps) 83-year-old legend of the mechanical engineering world in Australia. His name is uh, Don Fry. And uh, he, he told me at the end of a consult once that he could do it. And I'm thinking, oh, who, who is this crazy old man? <laughs> and he has done an extraordinary job, absolutely. Amazing. So we've got this fantastic thing. And so my initials were J.I., he was Fry, oh. Jiffery, oh, wow. just didn't sound very good.
1: I thought it was just in a Jiffy. Oh, yeah. Well,
2: that's what, it just, it happened to double up. So uh, that's where it came from. So well, there you go. T- you watch we out watch for the Jiffy Stent coming
1: soon in a clinical trial to a hospital near you, we hope. but um, yeah, yeah Great innovation. And man. only somebody with his energy Absolutely. could actually drive that because yeah. it's very challenging, isn't <laughs> it? It's challenging to invent something and take it through, but in the medical device industry and people, obviously the, the safeguards are challenging. So good luck. On the you on must the give us
0: an update when it's ready to go. I'm
2: very happy to. Yeah.
1: Have. Great. What a great podcast. I enjoyed that's that. Great. I learned a lot. I did I'm too. am more inspired than ever to do better for our patients who were starting yeah. on ADT uh, in every way but as i say sitting here at the end of 2023 renew um, it's so different to what it was even a year ago yeah. 5 years ago the 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 outlook for patients is is so much better so um, yeah, we the landscape to, has
0: changed yes. just so quickly, and and for the better. So uh, you know we're we're in a good position.
1: Exactly, and having um, access to uh, these AR pathway inhibitors or NHAs or whatever we might like to call them, we will do a Twitter poll. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. great for great <laughs> for our patients. Um, so great, um,
0: and thank you, Joseph. Yeah, for oh, thank you very
1: much for having me. It's a absolute podcaster. pleasure to be. here. Yeah. Yeah innovator exactly look it up uh, Talking Urology um, thanks very much to Joseph for joining us uh, thank you very much to you all for listening and watching do get in touch do subscribe do rate and review us it helps people find the podcast uh, and makes a bit of a difference and we'll be back to talk to you again uh, very soon goodbye from us
2: bye